tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Here's hoping today's episode finds you well, in good health, and not being beguiled by con artists, flim-flam folks, confidence men. My name is Ben. My trusty co-host, Noel, is on the road. Uh, But don't worry, you won't have to listen to me monologue at Casey for 30 minutes, because today we are joined again uh, by uh, one of our Longtime favorite guest on the show, our uh, former research associate and now executive producer at iHeartMedia, Christopher Hasiotis. Hello, Ben. Hello, everyone. <laughs> hello, Casey. Hello, hello. And that's our super producer, Casey Pegram. Christopher, it is, I always say this and I always mean it, it is a pleasure to join forces with you on the show again today. Uh, I should point out that I was promised cookies. There was a trail of cookies leading from my desk to this uh, this recording booth here. Yeah. I don't see any cookies. I feel like I was conned. <laughs> well, I was swindled. Well, uh, you were not entirely bamboozled here, my friends, because if you look at the fine print of that contract, it's more like you're promised the pursuit of cookies. Ben, all I can say right now, and (laughs) listeners, uh, I plead with you, the door is locked. I can't get out of this studio. So I've got the pleasure of sitting here with Ben and chatting about what I seem to be called back for with some relative frequency, con artists. Yeah, that's absolutely right. We didn't start out uh, planning to do so many episodes about scams and con artists, but it turns out that this ridiculous history of human civilization is lousy with con artists, some who are hilariously bad, some who are unbelievably lucky, 
and a, a, a small few who, for quite a while, seem to get away scot-free. Uh, today is also mm, sort of our Iowa episode. I, I don't know if we checked in with you about this, man, but we're still on our crazy Suf John Stevens-esque quest to do an episode for every state in the United States. I encourage your endeavor. I, I say stick with it. Yeah, well, we're already way ahead of Suf John. Well, the last time we talked about that and, and it came up was uh, we were talking about George Washington. And speaking of, uh, of scams, you tried to pull one over on the listeners, if I remember correctly, hmm. by saying that uh, talking about George Washington counted as a Washington State episode, <laughs> to which I then and now objected and object. Yes, uh, the motion carries. I find that sustained. What What would you say, Casey? Is that too much of a scam? It's a little bit of a scam, yeah. I'm going to give it, um, I don't know, five Pinocchios or whatever dumb <laughs> rating people would use for a scam. This is your show, and I am but a warm body and a warm voice. <laughs> Casey on the case. Uh, it is it is Casey's show. Thanks. I'm also locked in here. Uh, but today's show takes us, in a way, to Iowa. But before we get to Iowa, we have to introduce you to someone who is who must be at least vaguely familiar to many of us listening today, and that is Sir Francis Drake. Right. Um, hmm. How would you describe him, Ben? Would you say he's a... Uh, a, a sailor, a man of the high seas, uh, <laughs> a hero, a pirate, Oof. a privateer. Mm-hmm. Uh, a slave trader, a human trafficker. Yeah, Francis Drake is one of those historical figures who has not aged well because growing up, especially in the West, a lot of school children were taught, let's say, the sanitized mm-hmm. version of this guy's story. And he did impressive things. He's got a lot of accolades. Yes, he, that, he accomplished things, yes. Yeah, uh, he was the second person ever to circumnavigate the globe. The first Englishman, for whatever that counts for. Mm-hmm, that's, big, that's a big deal with the English. Mm-hmm. And he also had the approval of the queen as far as his privateering and his piracy went. She was completely, you know, fine with his activities. He wasn't, in his time, in his country, he was not considered a criminal. However, of course, the Spanish hated him. Well, he wasn't considered a criminal because uh, basically, you know, it's one of those technicalities. If you don't make something a crime, you're not a criminal. If you if you produce results, people can um, ignore the way you got those results. And that's definitely the case with Francis Drake and a lot of the privateers who were active in the uh, 18th and 19th century. Absolutely. He was differentiated from you know, your independent mom-and-pop piracy business uh, by the commission from Queen Elizabeth. And when privateers received this sort of, well, they were called letters of mark, when privateers received one of these things, it was fairly specific, described where and when uh, he could operate and against whom. So he was given the green light to prey on Spanish galleons. And by the time he was 20, talk about an early start, he was deep in the privateering game. Francis Drake looted a lot of Spanish gold. And well, Ben, I'll, yeah. I'll interrupt you. Please. Spanish gold is a um, bit of a misnomer as well, right? So yeah. it's Spanish gold. It's not like the Spanish just had the gold or made the gold. So mm-hmm. the Spanish came to the Americas, or what mm-hmm. would become called the Americas, and, uh, you know, took gold that they 
found there. Oh, <laughs> wow. They, they, you know, they took the gold from native populations mm-hmm. um, from those communities and were taking it back to Spain. It was in Spanish possession at the time. But I think a lot of the way that we've talked about history, especially pirate history and sort of this this romantic notion of the, the Caribbean and the back and forth between the continents. You know, we talk about the British. We talk about the English. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talk about the Spanish, the Portuguese to a certain extent and and their gold. But – it was only Spanish because the Spanish took it. Right. And that is a very good point because <laughs> when you look at it that way, which is the most accurate way to look at the sequence of events, Francis Drake was stealing goods that had already been stolen, right? And it just had this, uh, this thin veneer of legality. And one thing we know about this, regardless of the distinctions, the rationalizations tossed about during the course of Drake's career, he died a very, very well-off dude. He was enormously successful stealing this stolen gold. And people also thought, this is the key part of his life for our purposes, people also thought that Francis Drake had stashed away some some treasure trove, you know, that he had in addition to his known earnings and his known, you know, possessions in his estate that he had somewhere else, somewhere in the world, hidden away a mysterious fortune worth uh, as much as, uh, by one estimate, $100 billion. Which is a lot of gold. That's a lot of gold. That's a lot of gold. And that's not uncommon. That's part of the romance of of the ideas, especially when either at the time or in retrospect, you're talking about these somewhat scurrilous characters who skirted the edge of legality, were were enemies to some, friends to others, somewhat legal pirates working with the sort of uh, the stamp of approval of the queen. And so as these pirates are pirating their way around the Caribbean, it's only natural to assume as they're hiding in coves in little uh, – Inlets. Yeah, yeah. inlets, exactly. Um, You know, there might be a a couple chests somewhere. And and Drake, he died in 1596, so, you know, end of the 16th century. He died um, somewhere in the Caribbean in the the Greater Antilles. Dysentery is what got him. It wasn't any of the swashbuckling. There were no (laughs) uh, mutinies or rebellions or uh, angry deck swabbers. Right. He passed away in a surprisingly – not that dysentery is a pleasant way to go – but in a comparatively pleasant way compared to, you know, the other hazards of his occupation. I don't know, a a quick uh, musket shot to the head or a a sword through the throat or whatever you see in the movies. That's pretty quick. That is pretty quick. That's true. Less gruesome. Well, I don't know. Dysentery, I imagine, is fairly gruesome. Yeah, you know, of the three, I would rather not pick any. You know, Uh, he probably probably did not want to go out that way either. But Ben... Can we fast forward a couple hundred years? Yes, we should. Because you see, Francis Drake left no legitimate heir. And his fortune seemed to have vanished. This became a cool story to tell around the campfire for, as you said, several hundred years. Let's fast forward to the early 20th century in Iowa in somewhere between 1915 and 1919, right? Right. So um, definitely not pirate territory. No, 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 no. Uh, the Iowan pirate industry was not in its glory days, right? And maybe hasn't reached them yet. So there's this guy in Madison County, Iowa, 
His name is Oscar Merrill Hartzell. He had tried a couple of different occupations with middling success. Uh, he was working as, as a farmer at times. He was working as uh, a deputy sheriff there in Madison County. And when he is about, around about 39, 40 years old, he meets two people who uh, are very charming, very mm -hmm. glad-handing. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that they have, through mysterious, unique means, a line on the legendary fortune of Sir Francis Drake. And they talk to Oscar's mom, and they say, Mrs. Hartzell, we will give you a slice of this amazing pie treasure. Wait, this amazing treasure of, this amazing pie of treasure. There we go. Treasure pie. Yeah, treasure, I feel like treasure pie is probably the more direct way. Well, there's probably, if you go to like some Iowa church sale, there's a nice woman who will sell you a slice of treasure pie. <laughs> and it's probably studded with gummy bears and Snickers. Uh-huh. Uh, but that's not what we're talking about. That's not, no, no. We're we could be. We, we could be. We it's should be. a different be. show. I am sorry about the cookies. All okay, right. I owe you. So, so this couple tells Oscar's mom that, you know, they will turn this – $6,000 into a much larger sum of money, reportedly $6 million bucks, And they go along with it. His mother is a victim of what turns out to be a con because, you see, it was not uncommon for people to falsely claim that they could help you get a piece of the legendary treasure of Sir Francis Drake. This is a version of an older con, the unclaimed estate con, right? And that still happens uh, today uh, via email. Oh, yeah. Nigerian princes aplenty. Uh, you know, we've, we've talked about this before on the show, how people are so willing to buy into something. But I think what you mentioned is that it, it was a common con, and that's part of why I think it's easier for people to go along with it, right? If someone just came to you and said, hey, we've got this in on millions of dollars, you could be the only one. Mm -hmm. That may raise some questions. But, you know, at the time in Iowa, in Missouri, around there, this was becoming more and more common. Uh, there was a woman named Sudie Whitaker who really got things going in this sort of Drake fortune swindle. She claimed to be related to a man named George Drake and could trace her lineage back to him. And mm -hmm. then uh, they claimed that Drake, George, came from Sir Francis Drake. And basically, the way the swindle worked is pretty much what you've laid out. There's this, this massive fortune, but it's being held up in court, and we need your help to get it out. Mm -hmm. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. 
But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return, your time won't, and we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So yeah, Oscar Hartzell saw his mom getting swindled. Mm-hmm. Ben, what would you do if you saw one of your parents getting bilked out of some money? Would well, you defend them? Would you try to argue with the people who stole money from them? Mm-hmm. What, what? Possibly take legal action. Yeah. And, um, call the cops. Sure. Uh, shout about it out of a window, online, in a podcast. Mm-hmm. Would you join forces with them? You know, that is the plot twist, right? Most people would say no. Right? Like, uh, that that wouldn't be your instinct, would it, Christopher? It would not. So, so it was Oscar's instinct, and there's there's a strange evolution here. The two con artists he meets, one, the infamous Sudi Whitaker that you mentioned, the other, a severely Weasley lawyer named Milo Lewis, uh, which I know can sound sort of stereotypical, but this guy was a real cad. He was a pill. These are the folks who bilk Oscar's mom out of thousands of dollars. And Oscar notices that, surprise, surprise, the money from the Drake estate does not come pouring down on them. He decides to seek out Sudi and Milo. And at this point, we're pretty sure he still thought this was a legitimate thing and not a con at first. And, you know, he's essentially checking in, where's the money? Hope you guys are doing well. Talk soon. And so Lewis and Whitaker, in an excellent piece of improvisation, I must say, they say, you know what, Oscar? We like the cut of your jib. You want to work with us? Because we can get this money faster if we have a little more cash to prime the pump. So would you help us recruit additional people to invest in this astonishing opportunity? And he says, yes, the three of them go to England And they tell their investors, we are traveling across the pond because we need to work out just some of the legal kinks, the bureaucracy in person in England. And, uh, you know, BRB, 
TTYL, love you. That yeah. kind of stuff. And and while he's in England, they're still communicating not just with the marks that they had identified while in the U.S., but they actually set up a network of even more people to work for them, to act as their agents in Iowa, uh, in Missouri, in that region of the country. So they're going around basically with a sort of pyramid scheme setup where their agents are the ones going to people and saying, listen, this Drake fortune could be anywhere from, uh, they promised some people $22 billion. They told some other people $400 billion, Mm. which is a lot of billions of dollars. But here's why they needed the help of the individual people in the U.S. that they were talking to. They said that this money has been found. The fortune is in the United Kingdom. And anyone with the last name Drake, anyone who can tie their lineage back to Sir Francis Drake is eligible for a cut of that money. And you, sir or madam, could be one of those people. But we need your help because the court costs in the U.K. are outrageous. You know how they are. $2,500 a week is what they have to spend just to keep the case going in the UK. Mm-hmm. So they promised people, as Hartzell's mother fell prey to, these ridiculous, ridiculous returns. They said, mm-hmm. for every dollar you invested, you would get $500 back, you know, when this fortune is re- revealed. And Ben, I'm just going to step back and say, anytime anyone promises you, what is that, a 50 thousand percent return <laughs> right maybe maybe uh maybe take a step back mm. juice your skepticism a little bit yeah but seventy thousand people in the u.s that's true seventy thousand people bought into this that is a lot of people that is it's not 400 billion people but it is quite quite a large number and you know as we say it's it can always be tempting to look back and think, ah, what a bunch of rubes, you know, how gullible, how credulous. Uh, however, when they were in the moment, th- a lot of these 70,000 people came from similar backgrounds. They knew one another because there was this uh, multi-level marketing thing mm-hmm. is what it ultimately evolved into the way people were recruiting. So they were not necessarily getting strangers as often as they were getting their friends, their neighbors, their loved ones, people who uh, went to the same general store, the same um, church or something. People you could believe, people who could vouch for you, people who, you know, and Hartzell made things seem like they were on the up and up. He established an official organization, the Sir Francis Drake Association. Mm -hmm. Uh, He put out official newsletters. You know, this was, it looked legit. It looked legit. It walked and quacked like a duck. But before we go into the beauty of his con, let's let's take just a second to point out the internal evolution of his, his con gang. So as we said, Sudi and Milo, right, are the ones who inducted him into this. Hartzell is not a particularly thick or dopish dude. He knows something is wonky about this, and he figures out while they are in England uh, that this is part of a scam. And he notices that Lewis and Whitaker, they have some internal tensions uh, because, you know, putting two con artists into a game seems like it's, it's unsustainable. It might not end well. Is that why Noel isn't here today? I have no comment. No, <laughs> uh, no, no. He is he is on an adventure mm. that um, I, I think he'll, yeah, yeah. I think he'll tell us about. He, he should be in. Um, 
He should be in New York. That's the story I'm sticking to. And uh, wait, are you a cop? I have no pithy remark. All right, Casey, no, leave it in. Leave it in for uh, later legal proceedings. <laughs> Honestly, Casey, that reminds me, I just need 50 bucks to uh, keep that stuff moving through court. Are you cool with that? Ben, I really don't think it's a good idea to talk about this on the air. That's true. <laughs> Unless some listeners want to join in, too. <laughs> Which we should. Wait, I think I just violated several laws, uh, <laughs> broadcast laws, digital laws, mm-hmm. corporate policies. Yeah. But, uh, well, it's a different time. $400 billion. $400 billion. Uh, Casey on the case, by the way, as well. So our different modern-day shenanigans aside, we could learn a lot from Hartzell in England because he sees opportunity in this increasingly chaotic partnership. And he becomes sort of the face of this. He, I don't want to say franchises, but he punches up essentially the original scheme. He starts uh, dressing in custom suits and he starts looking the part, you know, of someone who would be considered – uh, an old money descendant, right, of of Francis Drake himself. There's an excellent article in this called May I Hold Your Watch, which comes from Susan Adams and refers to, in part, a different, equally impressive con artist. But we have a rough idea of the pitch. We know that the number that he would give people varied, as you said, $22 billion, $400 billion, somewhere in between. And it was tied up in probate court Also, the cash value wasn't the entirety of the fortune. The entire English city of Plymouth was up for grab. And he started off finding, you know, people with the surname Drake, uh, a relationship, some sort of possible or plausible connection to this historical figure. But then I guess the money got too good. He expanded the con. He started talking to people outside of Iowa, including a lot of people who— had no relation to Francis Drake, not even an ostensible pretend one, no relation whatsoever. And that's when he started getting to uh, that 70,000 people mark that you mentioned. And he was living high on the hog, an opulent lifestyle, as we said, top-notch clothing, eating at the best restaurants, etc. Pretty much the exact behavior we see con artists committing in feature films. <laughs> And the thing is, this con still powers on. He was able to keep it running pretty successfully until a couple of things happened. He was able to keep it running until the Great Depression, despite various red flags that proved his falsehoods, right? The British government announced in 1922 that there was no fortune, from Francis Drake. Yeah, that's the thing is it's not like no one else had thought about this, right? right. So the the government had kind of paid attention and um, they said, look, whatever fortune that there was, it probably went to Drake's second wife, Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. And so there's nothing left. There's no, If there's a hidden treasure, go grab a shovel. But there's nothing in the probate courts. You know, there, there are no billions of pounds just waiting to be dispersed. Exactly. But people don't want to hear that because if you believe in this sort of audacious, get-rich-quick dream, then you it'll be part of your internal logic. Of course the government is going to say it's not there. Yeah. You know? 
but I am a descendant of Francis Drake, and this gold, at least some of it, at least a few billion of it, belongs to me. Another thing that Hartzell did wisely was to stay in the UK at the time. Because yeah. he wasn't breaking any British laws. He, w- he was just hanging out, making money, dressing nicely, walking around, eating well, and sending letters. Right, because, again, his, his supporters were U.S.-based. So it's very smart to have an ocean between them in case the heat picked up. Which it, it did. It did. It always does. It always does. This heat took the form of a pretty tenacious postal officer in the U.K. who started to get suspicious and said, all right, what's really going on with this Drake venture? And when he found out, he reported this to the authorities. As you said, Christopher, the British could not prosecute Hartzell. He did not commit any crimes, right? He was just sort of a a foodie and a man about town and a clothes horse. But what they could do is deport him. They could extradite him to the U.S. uh, to stand trial for mail fraud, which is how, like, the specific charge they wanted to get him for. Fast forward 1933, Iowa. Hartswell is on trial, Oscar Hartswell. And here's the crazy thing. He doesn't show up alone. He has a hundreds-strong mob of fans, supporters, fellow investors who are cheering him because they feel like this is, I don't know, this makes me think of the context too, right, when we're talking about the 30s. Uh, This makes me think that at least part of the psychology here could be a um, a, a sort of fight against authoritarian figures thing going on. You know, and people are saying, well, the common man is always getting crushed by the courts. Well, sure. And at the time, not unlike some other times in uh, in past or more recent or contemporary history – you know, people are desperate. They've mm-hmm. they've lost a lot of money, but they also don't necessarily see a path towards getting more stability or more money for their lives, right? So yeah. they feel like they've exhausted the traditional paths. They've done what they were told to do. They tried working for the farm. They tried working for their company, and it didn't work out. So even if you sat down with someone and said, listen, do you really think you're going to get millions and millions of dollars. Hmm. Be like, well, mate, I don't know. But like, but what's it going to hurt? If I'm already getting screwed over, <laughs> if my life is already not in great shape and I don't have good prospects, why not put aside $100, $200, with the prospects of maybe this will pay off massively in the future? I mean, you see very similar situation. You could argue that state lotteries mm-hmm. operate in much the same way. You sure. Know, people know – they know the odds are against them, mm-hmm. but they might not be, you know? It always makes me think of one way my father used to describe uh, lotteries and gambling. He said, the lottery is a, a, a tax on people who are bad at math. <laughs> it's like a, it's a tax for not thinking through the math. Well, he said it with a much more charming East Tennessee accent. He did. Know. He did. He did. He is really leaning into that accent <laughs> uh, post-retirement. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. 
So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jean, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a heartbreaking part of this because we have to realize that a lot of people who had bought into this, even if it were not their entire fortune, this was like the dream that Mm -hmm. they clung to, you know, as things got worse and worse in day-to-day life. They were waiting for justice to be served and them to receive their rightful inheritance from their lauded ancestor, Francis Drake, and Oscar Hartzell is their golden ticket. Yeah, he's the conduit through which this success will arrive. There may or may not also have been a little bit of, you know— American versus the British oh, system yeah. of, uh, oh, you know, the ki- the king's got things held up in court. And uh, <laughs> we hardworking Americans are just trying to free that mm-hmm. for ourselves. Um, but, yeah, I, as you point out, Hartzell shows up in court not just with supporters, not just with the people, but with their money. I mean, he raised over the 15 years he ran this scam, he made $2 million for himself. Mm -hmm. For himself, $2 million. And yet when he goes to court, his supporters still pledge money for a defense fund. And um, I saw a couple different numbers when I was doing the research for this piece, which, by the way, I really recommend any listeners who want to read more about this, check out a a New Yorker article from 2002. Oh, it's great. Yeah, written by Richard Rayner. It's called The Admiral and the Con Man. It's got Mm -hmm. a lot of really great details in there. 
But Hartzell's supporters raised anywhere from $68,000 to $350,000 for his defense to pay for the lawyers when he was in court despite the fact that he had $2 million of – well, not his own, but yeah. That he had kind of generated the fortune he was claiming to have. Uh, Yeah, they also paid for his bail. Mm -hmm. And despite all this public support, Hartsfeld is convicted. They say they're going to ship him off to Leavenworth for 10 years on these mail fraud charges. While he is in jail, the scam continues. It collects another half a million dollars. Some people died convinced that – Uh, You know, this fortune will not go to me now that I'm going to pass away, but it will go to my children and their children. So there's there's some hope Mm -hmm. at the end of the long day. And it's nuts. He had, you know, he had at this point kind of, I don't want to call them employees, associates, like his his agents. His agents, yeah. yeah, His brother, a guy named Canfield, uh, played an instrumental role in keeping the con going. But now – Uncle Sam is wise to it, and Hartswell goes to trial again. He loses again. <laughs> and this is, this is one of my favorite parts. I, I wish we had the substance of this to do a reenactment, but we'll, we'll, we'll spare you that because we don't have the exact language here. At his sentencing, he jumps up and starts raving like an unhinged lunatic about how – amazing the Drake estate is and how, you know, history will see who was right and who was on, you know, who was correct in this mad endeavor. And this is the the weird thing. We will probably never know how much or how little he actually believed that. I was really, I'm really interested to hear your take because he spoke with prison psychiatrists and they said that he was claiming he was, he, that he himself was Sir Francis Drake and they diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia at the time. But was this another con? You know what I mean? Was he like angling to go for some kind of insanity plea? I don't know. I, I don't know that the um, it would have benefited him at the time. It, it may be the sort of narcissistic um, you know, personality traits where you, you just don't want to get caught in a lie even if you know you're lying. So you build it bigger and bigger and bigger. But and draw also, a little uh, extra addition to a hurricane <laughs> map. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, the, so he spent his time in Leavenworth, which is a, a big deal prison, right? That's where he would have been there at the same time as uh, gangsters like Machine Gun Kelly, like in the same building. This is serious business. But while he was there, he also, you know, at the the prison psychiatrist you mentioned, they also encouraged him to get his story out uh, to help himself with these delusions. So he wrote in 1936 a prison autobiography, which I think it would just be fascinating. I I wasn't able to find any of the original material, but it is mentioned in that um, in that Rayner piece mm-hmm. because Rayner himself, in researching for this article that was published 17 years ago got a lot of files released by Scotland Yard. You know, Scotland Scotland Yard had three folders about Hartzell. It called him a, quote, unquote, notorious offender. And in there was a copy of this, probably the only copy of this autobiography that he wrote while in prison. Yeah, and shouts out to Richard Rayner because he did so much legwork on this. This story, oddly enough, sort of faded from the conversation until hardworking journalists and historians like Rayner uh, hunted it 
down. Well, I was able to find out that in um, in 2000, there was a play put on in London called Scam. <laughs> just, just Scam. <laughs> to the tune of fame. Yeah. Um, about this this very episode. So a couple years before Rainer's mm-hmm. article. So I don't know if, if one fed into the other. You know, sure. maybe it was sort of bubbling up in the zeitgeist. And it's, you know, one of those things where people kind of knew about it, but it really took uh, the dedicated efforts of of serious writers and researchers to really bring this thing to light. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, listeners, if you are in Iowa or that part of the country, does any of this ring familiar to you? A lot of people have never heard about this before. I knew very little about it. I had heard of kind of the Drake swindle, but I didn't know about its relationship to a very specific part of the United States. Oh, and if you'd like to learn more about it too, Richard Rayner wrote a book about this in 2003 called Drake's Fortune, The Fabulous True Story of the World's Greatest Confidence Artist, which that title, those you have to be careful with those sorts of superlatives. What exactly is a con artist? Eh, helps sell books. It helps sell books. That's true. And it's a real book. If you pay for it, you will get a copy of the book. It's not like Drake's fortune. It's strange because although Rayner does uh, pass away at the age of 67 in 1943, he doesn't pass away in prison. He passes away in a hospital for the criminally insane, as they were called at the time. I do want to point out that while it may have been different from Leavenworth Prison, it was still not a particularly nice place to be, right? Yeah, still a prison. Still a prison, and we could do an entire episode on the U.S. treatment of people with mental issues historically. Oh, that's a dark one, man. We might have to save that one for October. Um, However, we know that despite him passing away, People still believed the story, the story that he created. Well, the story that he punched up from Milo and Sudi continued on without him, which I think is amazing. Well, yeah, you know, it's the sort of thing where sometimes founders don't know what they've got until someone comes along and boosts it up. You know, you see that in legitimate corporations, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, the guys who founded McDonald's, they were doing okay selling burgers in California until Ray Kroc came along. And said, hey, I've got an idea for you. Let's take this big time. Yeah, exactly. And that's an excellent comparison. That is why, uh, according to Rayner, in that New Yorker piece you mentioned earlier, Christopher, even after Oscar Hartswell's death, towns in Iowa and Minnesota became divided between people who said, okay, this was a scam, I got got, and people who said no. Big government, shut this down. The Drake fortune is out there. I have a piece of it. I can't believe you're giving up, non-believer or whatever. You know, and this this sort of cultural conflict continued for years afterwards. This story makes me think that while this guy may not have been the world's greatest con man, whatever that means, he's definitely in the top tier of the list, wouldn't you say? It's, it's certainly a ridiculous list to be part of. It's certainly a ridiculous list to be part of. Uh, and just to emphasize this, it is a list that Casey, my co-host Noel, and I are not on by any means. I still don't have cookies. All right, man, but, you know, it just takes a lot to prime the pump. What's Ben, what's <laughs> the difference between a swindle and just a flat-out lie? 
The difference between a swindle and a flat-out lie would be that— When it, I don't have cookies. Oh. <laughs> That's the difference. That's the difference? I was I was going into it. I know you were, I know part. you were, yeah. <laughs> you heard me take a breath, and I was like, well, you know, uh, sometimes, like a swindle would have a, sometimes a material exchange of goods. Yeah, I just—just give me a cookie. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Christopher Hasiotis. We will indeed uh, bring you some cookies. Uh, I have to. I have to say, uh, it is always a pleasure. Uh, I will be sending an email requesting your cookie preferences, and we'd also like to hear your take, folks. What What are your favorite cookies? Do you know anyone who was maybe involved in this sort of the, this huge con, this huge swindle, uh, and do you think that Oscar Hartswell, at the very end of his life, do you think he really believed he was Francis Drake? Or do you think he was just trying to get one last con over? Uh, thank you so much to our super producer, Casey Pegram, Alex Williams, who composed our track, uh, our research associates, Gabe Ryan, uh, Eves Jeffcoat, who may be appearing on the show soon, and Christopher Despite the fact that you and I have had our uh, baked goods-related differences in the course of this show, uh, how, how would you feel about uh, coming back on for another one sometime? You know, that's the way it crumbles. There is no one I'd rather be locked in a studio with than you, Ben. Okay, it's very specific compliment. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, we'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. Well, how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.